this morning we look at the subject of a humiliated Savior as we remember this time of year, the Palm Sunday event, where Jesus entered into Jerusalem to the acclamations of the people, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's turn in our Bibles for our Old Testament reading to Zechariah, the ninth chapter, where I'd like to read for you verses 8 to 10, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 8 to 10. And as you're turning in your Bibles, I might just remind you that the beginning of the ninth chapter of Zechariah is the burden of the word of Jehovah upon the land of Hadrach in Damascus. God speaks of the judgment that is coming upon these lands and the kingdom that he will establish through his judgmental intervention. And then summing this up, we read in the eighth verse, beginning now the word of God, and I will encamp about my house against the army that none pass through or return, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with mine eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon a donkey, even upon the colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen. And then turn for our New Testament reading to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Matthew 21, and we'll take as our reading the first 11 verses. Hear now God's word. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and came unto Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village that is over against you, and straightway you shall find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if anyone says anything unto you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. Now this was come to pass, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and riding upon a donkey, and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did even as Jesus appointed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their garments, and he sat thereon. And the most part of the multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them in the way. And the multitudes that went before him and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. It was the summer of my sixth grade year in school, and I remember it very well. This weather, in fact, reminds me of it. It was a warm summer, and it was a turnaround summer for the Dodgers. And for a sixth grader, that was very important. No longer were they the Brooklyn bums. No longer were they that team that had come out to Los Angeles and was stuck in the Coliseum. They now had their own place to play there in Chavez Ravine, and Sandy Koufax was their hero. 
And oh, I'll tell you, when I was young, Sandy Koufax was the hero to me, the left-handed marvel. Now that was when I was in sixth grade. By the time I was a 12th grader, a senior in high school, I remember the last Dodger game I went to before I finally went on to college and put away childish things. And in that game, <laughs> my uh, wife-to-be and I were there. And it seemed such a dull game to everybody, inning after inning, Sandy Koufax pitching, but it wasn't dull for me because every inning I could see it coming. He would set the world's record for a uh, no-hit game. This man was marvelous. But you see, if Sandy Koufax had been a losing pitcher rather than a winning pitcher, he would not have been my hero and he would not have been yours. He would have been no one's hero because no one sees in a hero a loser. In our culture, heroes have to be winners. They have to be macho. They have to be big time. They have to make a name for themselves by accomplishing what other people cannot accomplish. They have to be winners. And so you see how difficult it is for the American culture in which I lived and went away to college and to accept that we lost the war in Vietnam. We don't lose. Winners don't lose. Winners are not humiliated. If we want heroes and saviors, they must be people of exalted position and fame. They must be people who accomplish great things for us. We are not that far away from the Greek and Hebrew culture of the ancient world when we think in these terms. For the ancient world, a savior was a heroic figure, a person of honor and might and accomplishment. The saviors were supposed to be heroes. It was expected of them. I would like you to look first at the Greek concept of a hero, the Greek concept of a savior in the ancient world. According to the Greeks, the gods were saviors, saviors from the dangers of life. They were protectors and they were preservers of men. And it's interesting, the first extant use of the Greek word for savior, soter, that we have in ancient Greek literature, applies it to the god Poseidon, or what the Romans called Neptune, the god of the sea who saved sailors and so forth. He was called the soter of men, Poseidon, the savior of men. We see the word applied to another god in Greek mythology, Asclepius who was the god of the sick. He healed the sick and therefore became the god of the doctors. Do you all remember, of course, from reading Socrates' death and Plato's account of that, something you are familiar with, I am sure, that uh, Socrates indicates to Plato that an offering is to be made to Asclepius before he drinks the hemlock, because he is the god who takes care of the sick and the dying. Most especially Zeus, of course, was the soter among the Greeks. He was the savior of the Greeks because he was the most mighty of the gods. But the Greeks did not simply apply the word savior to the gods. They applied it to men as well. Men were saviors when they delivered others from trouble and when they delivered people from danger. And so Philip of Macedon, who of course was the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon is called by the inhabitants of Thessaly, friend, benefactor, and savior. Caesar himself was called the savior of the world long before Jesus Christ had that applied to him. And in the famous decree of Halicarnassus, we see that Augustus is, because he brought obedience to law, and because he brought prosperity and brought peace to the Roman Empire, called Savior of the whole race of men. 
And so we get the general idea, don't we? Whether we look at the Sandy Koufax story, if we look at the ancient Greeks, saviors are to be heroes. Saviors are to be great men, exalted men, men who deliver us and have fame coming to them for that. The Jewish concept of a savior was not all that much different. In fact, if you read the book of Judges in particular and later Old Testament references to the book of Judges, repeatedly that word savior is used for the judges who were raised up by God. And let's not forget, in case Sunday school um, training has slipped us here, let's not forget that the judges who were raised up were not judges because they sat on some kind of a throne and decreed justice for their um, kinsmen who came to them with troubles or lawsuits. They were judges because they were deliverers of their people. They brought justice from God for the sake of the people who were in distress and affliction. And so we read in Judges 2.16, Then Jehovah raised up judges who saved them from the power of those who plundered them. That's what a savior is. Someone who takes you out of the hand of the enemy, the one who is plundering you. In Nehemiah 9.27, where Ezra reflects back upon the day of the judges, he says to God, You gave them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their adversaries. And so there you have it. In the ancient world, whether you look at the Greek world or you look at the Jewish world, you see basically the same thing. In the ancient world, saviors were superior men. They were men with dignity and men with honor who claimed and had the right to exalted positions. They were men of fame. They were men of fine reputation. They were the statesmen of their day. They were the doctors of their day. They were the military commanders of their day who elicited praise and were given esteemed honors and were lifted up. And against that background, I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, But we preach Christ crucified. Unto Jews, a stumbling block. And unto Gentiles, foolishness. But unto them that are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The whole ancient world expected in a Savior a man who would come to deliver, a man who would come with esteem, a man who would be exalted, who would be a winner. And Jesus was a loser. Jesus was a criminal. He was crucified. He lost it. The project went awry. Something went wrong. And instead of being enthroned as the king of David in Jerusalem, by the end of the week, after the crowds had welcomed him, he was put to death as a martyr. And there you have the paradox of Christianity that I'd like to talk to you about just shortly this morning, the paradox of a humiliated savior. Not a winning savior, a loser. A humiliated Savior who does not have exalted rank when he saves us, but is put to death and is humbled under the hand of men. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that Christ came into this world to be our Savior. That Greek word that is uh, so precious, really, Savior to us, that is applied in a different way outside of biblical literature, is repeatedly applied to Jesus, the humiliated Savior, in the New Testament. Just remember the name given to the Messiah when the angel explained the circumstances to Joseph. The angel said of his wife, and she shall bring forth a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew means one who saves. You will call him that. He will be known throughout all eternity now as the Savior, Jesus. And when the angel sang to the shepherds on the night of his birth, they said, For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, Christ, the Lord. Our Savior is born and the early church proclaimed this very same message when it said, as we see in Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And in Acts 13.23, of this man's posterity, that is David, of David's posterity, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Those words are so beautiful. A Savior, Jesus. A Savior whose name is Savior. God has fulfilled his word. He kept his word to David that a prince would be raised up in David's house to save Israel. And now he has come. The early church saw this very clearly, that Jesus came to save. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 1.15? Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptance that... Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. That was the main purpose of his incarnation. He came into this world not that he should be exalted. He came into the world to take care of the need of those who were oppressed. Oppressed by sin and weighed down and under the wrath and curse of God. This is worthy of all acceptance that Jesus came to save. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.10 that the grace of God has now been manifested by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Our Savior has come. In Titus 3.6, Paul writes, God poured out his mercy upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So do you get the point? We could go on and on. It's used in many other verses too. But from beginning to end, from the very birth of Jesus to the New Testament reflection upon his life in ministry, Jesus is par excellence the Savior. But there's a problem. To be a Savior means to be a hero. It means to be a winner. It means to be exalted. How can Jesus be our Savior? After all, he was crucified as a criminal. He lost the affection of the crowds. He was rejected. Indeed, as Isaiah himself said, he would be a man of sorrows and afflicted, acquainted with grief. There would be nothing about him that we would desire. And so Jesus, the one who was put away, Jesus the loser, Jesus the criminal, is nevertheless Jesus the Savior on the pages of the New Testament. How is that? The answer to our question is that the Savior's humiliation was no accident. You see, we don't respect a politician who sets himself up, right, to be some great person with noble character and accomplishment. And then we find out, lo and behold, he's been lying about his accomplishments, and he doesn't have a very noble character. Politicians who slip up in terms of their public speaking or they show a side of their character that we don't consider worthy of a statesman are politicians who become losers. They don't intend it that way, but they slip and fall. Down they go. 
We need to understand that Jesus was not like that. Jesus did not become a loser. Jesus was not humiliated because there was some foul up in his public relations office. Jesus did not become a loser who was crucified because he didn't have the right political connections that could pull the strings for him. Jesus did not become a loser because somehow he didn't manipulate the crowds properly and take advantage of that Palm Sunday when he could have then overtaken the Romans with the enthusiasm of the crowd. Jesus is the one who chose to be humiliated. Christ knew that humility and death were the ordained purpose for his coming into the world. In Mark 10.45, you hear these mournful words of Jesus, the Son of Man also came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Had you been there, would you have listened well? Would that have sunk down into your ears? Would you have gotten the point? Would you have digested that message and understood it? I doubt it. The disciples were worthy people as far as human qualities and virtues go. But Jesus told them this repeatedly, that he would have to go to Jerusalem to die, that he came to be ransomed, to be delivered over to the hands of men. And as often as he said it, they were dull and did not hear it, did not believe it, could not understand that, because he was the Savior. Saviors don't die. Saviors don't lose. Saviors are not humbled. They are exalted. They win. They deliver for us. And that's why Peter found it so hard to believe that Jesus would be betrayed and turned over to his enemies. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter decided for himself that he would bring out the ancient Greek world and the ancient Jewish world's idea of a Savior by drawing his sword and saving Jesus, that Jesus might become his Savior. Terrible reasoning. Terrible reasoning, not just that you might have to save your Savior, that he would save you, but terrible reasoning because Jesus had told Peter and the others all along of the nature of his saving ministry. The Bible tells us that Jesus gave up his life purposely. He gave up his life voluntarily. It wasn't a plan that went wrong somehow. In John 10, the 17th verse, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. You know, if Jesus was not the Son of God as he claimed to be, those are just incredibly insane words, aren't they? Jesus says, no man can take my life from me. I'll die when I lay down my own life. I will voluntarily determine the time of my death because I will lay it down voluntarily and I will take it up again. No man exercises sovereignty over me. No man controls my life. No man controls my destiny. I am in complete control. You say, well then Jesus, why are you humiliated? Jesus, why do you die? Jesus said that he could call a legion of angels at any time to deliver him from that. You know very well that Jesus, the humiliated Savior, was not a loser because he didn't play the crowd right. He was not a loser because he didn't have the right P.O. He was a loser because he chose to lose, because he chose to be humiliated, because he chose to die. When in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks very graphically of being lifted up from the earth, language of crucifixion, he says, For this cause I came unto this hour. I came to die. 
The very turning point in Luke's gospel comes at Luke 9, verse 51. All of the gospel of Luke builds up to that verse, and everything turns then another direction from that point on. In Luke 9, 51, it came to pass when the days were well nigh come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Did Jesus go to Jerusalem that he might be exalted, set out upon a throne, drive out the Romans and become the deliverer of the Jews? Did he set his face to Jerusalem because that was the Mecca of the day and he wanted to worship there along with all the other Jews? No, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem for one reason only, because he knew he had to die. In verse 22 of that same chapter in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised up. He's already taught them the chief priest, the scribes, the elders of the people, they will reject me, they will kill me. And he sets his face steadfastly to go. Now what would you do? You would say, well, I'm going to not go to Jerusalem. This is not the most opportune time to be in Jerusalem. Jesus determined to go right then. In verse 44, he said, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered up into the hands of men. Let it take hold of you, Jesus says. Understand this. I'm going to Jerusalem to be delivered, to die, to be crucified. And yet they didn't understand. Now you look later in the New Testament at Paul's magnificent survey of the career of our Savior, which we find in Philippians chapter 2. And in it, Paul divides Christ's ministry into a time of humiliation and then followed by a time of glory. He speaks of the one who was existing in the form of God, who didn't consider that position something to grasp after. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, yes, the death of a cross. Wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. You see how Paul theologically summarizes the life and ministry of our Savior? A time of humiliation where he comes and takes on the form of a man and humbles himself to death, even a criminal's death, and then God highly exalts him from humiliation to exaltation, from losing to victory, from laying down his life to triumph. And it had to be that way. That was the basic sweeping thrust of all the Old Testament scriptures. The whole Old Testament anticipated that message. Remember on the road to Emmaus, as we read in Luke, the 24th chapter, that there are two disciples of Jesus who are down in the mouth, despairing and brokenhearted that they've lost their Savior. And Jesus appears to them, and they are so far gone mentally about Jesus being the one who died that they don't even recognize him upon the road. They don't anticipate seeing him ever again. And he says to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, behooved it not the Christ, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. First humiliation, then triumph. You must first suffer, then enter into your glory. That was the message of the Old Testament. And beginning from Moses 
And from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Peter as well, the one who didn't understand that message in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter later in his first epistle writes, 1 Peter 1 verses 10 and 11, concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently when the Spirit of Christ testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. Peter finally has become a New Testament theologian. Peter has finally become a biblical theologian when he understands that all the prophets speaking of the salvation to come were looking for a suffering savior who would enter into his glory, one who would lose in order that he might triumph. And all this by way of explanation of Matthew's words in Matthew 21 verse 4. Now this came to pass that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet saying, and then the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 9 is recounted. Turn in your Bible lesson this morning to Matthew 21 at the ninth verse. Excuse me, the fourth verse. What we've just read. Now it's come to pass that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king comes unto thee, meek, and riding upon a donkey, upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why did that happen? Well, because in the verses just preceding that, Jesus has sent two of his disciples ahead to get a donkey, indeed a, a colt, to bring him into Jerusalem. I don't know if you children played this game, if it's still in the children's magazines, but when I was a child, I remember very well that we'd have a picture in a magazine, and you were supposed to find all the things that were wrong with the picture. Somebody's hat would be un upside down, but just the way it was, you know, drawn, it, if you didn't look closely, you wouldn't find all those things. You'd find the wrong kind of animal in the wrong kind of cage, and these sorts of things. Well, now, children, I want you to tell me what's wrong with this picture. The Savior, the King of Israel, is coming, and he's riding into the capital city of his empire, and he's riding on a donkey. All the people are cutting down palm branches and laying them in front of him as a way of acclaiming that he is the son of David come to reign. They are singing his praises. They are even taking off their coats and laying them in the way to say we humble ourselves before you. You are our king as he comes riding in on a donkey. Can't any child tell me what's wrong with that picture? You don't ride a donkey. Not if you're a king. Not a donkey but rather a horse, and best of all, a white horse. In fact, you'll see that that symbolism is very well understood in the New Testament. If you look at Revelation, the sixth chapter, verse 2, the rider upon the white horse coming, comes forth conquering and to conquer. That's the message of the white horse, a conqueror, a savior, a deliverer, a winner. And here comes Jesus, the winner. Here comes Jesus, the king in David's royal line. Here comes Jesus, the deliverer of his people. Jesus acclaimed by the people, not on a white horse, on a donkey. Interesting thing is that Jesus purposely set it up that way. Jesus said, go get the donkey. It wasn't easy to do. Jesus sent them ahead to the next city, to the next village, to get that donkey that he might ride into Jerusalem. It wasn't, it wasn't even his own donkey. Jesus sends them ahead and he says, untie the donkey and the colt with it and bring them. And if anyone says anything to you about that, just say, the Lord has need of them. 
Boy, there's something very divine about this individual who knows these things in advance and knows exactly what's going to be asked and what will change their tune. Jesus says, just tell them the Lord has need of them. I would surmise that the person whose donkey Jesus used was already known. Uh, and Jesus was known to this individual. And so that when the disciples said the Lord, this person knew who they were talking about. But Jesus set it up by his own sovereignty. He said, go get a donkey. Not a horse, but a donkey. I will ride in, not as an exalted Savior, but as a humiliated Savior. Why? And Matthew adds these words, that it might be fulfilled, these words of Zechariah. And so if we're going to understand this passage in Matthew before we close this morning, we really need to understand Zechariah and what Zechariah was saying. You turn back to Zechariah chapter 9, which we read earlier this morning. You remember that Zechariah has been given a message from God about judgment that would come upon Hadrach and Damascus. A judgment that will lead to the vindication of God's people because God will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And in verse 8, he says, They will no longer oppress you and pass through anymore. And so, we come to verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes. Verse 10. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the nations. And what kind of victor will he be? His dominion, his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah has picked up on something which Micah and Isaiah have already prophesied about. A coming Savior, a King, who will rule upon the throne of David, and who will to all the nations be a peacemaker, who will speak peace to the nations, who will have dominion over them. Even as the psalmist in Psalm 72 said, from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth, he will be the ruler. That's why Zechariah says, you should rejoice, daughters of Jerusalem. Jump for joy. The king is coming. The one who will vindicate Israel. The one who will establish a peaceful reign throughout all the earth. That great and marvelous Messiah is coming. But you see, you can't read Zechariah from chapter 9, verse 8 to verse 10 without going through verse 9. And even as Jesus had said, from all the prophets, you should be able to see that the Messiah must first suffer, then enter into his glory. Because Zechariah, after saying, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king comes unto thee, says he is just. And although my translation says having salvation in Hebrew, it's actually the one who is saved, the one who has God's saving might behind him. He is just and saved, lowly, riding upon a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. There's something wrong with Zechariah's picture. Here's the one who's going to have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth, and he's going to come upon a donkey, lowly. The word for lowly or humbled, perhaps, in some translations, is the word that can best be translated from the Hebrew, afflicted. One who is oppressed, one who is bowed down, one who is full of suffering. Your king comes afflicted. Your king is coming, jump for joy. He's humble and shall rule over the nations. 
The prophet speaks of that long-awaited prince who will arise within the house of David. But he tells us that the one who is coming, for which the people should rejoice, will be a humble Savior, a humiliated Savior. Now something very interesting happens between Zechariah 9 and Matthew 21. When Matthew quotes Zechariah, he doesn't quote it exactly. There's a reason for that. How does Zechariah 9.9 begin? Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout for joy. All of that is omitted in Matthew. Matthew does not open the quotation with those words. He rather opens with a quotation from Isaiah 62.11, where Isaiah says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. And so in Matthew 21, we read, Tell ye the daughter of Zion... Your salvation comes now, Zechariah. Behold, thy king comes unto thee, meek, humble, afflicted, and riding upon a donkey. Obviously, something has happened so that Matthew understands the theological meaning of Zechariah. And although it could have been properly quoted, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, Matthew edits out the rejoicing because he knows why Jesus chose the donkey. Matthew says, I understand what Jesus was doing. He's telling us that this time of rejoicing is going to turn into a time of humility and humiliation. And that's why, though all the outward circumstances were glorious, Jesus wanted the message to get across by riding upon a donkey. Jesus carried out a plan to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey because he wanted it to be known that as he presented himself to the city in the day of its visitation from God, He came not as a statesman, and not as a winner, and not as a warrior commander. He came as a savior who would be humiliated. Saviors don't ride donkeys, but this one did. In his devotion to the salvation of his people, Jesus did not want them to miss his divine intention. They must not miss that salvation meant death in their behalf because of their sins. You see, this Savior knows us much better than we know ourselves, and he knows our needs much better than we would ever have expected. Jesus knew that he came in as a royal commander and there set up his kingdom and did nothing about the deep, dark night of man's sinful soul. He would not have saved anyone at all. You see, we want a Savior that omits the nasty parts about us. We want a Savior who just looks glorious to us and makes us feel good about ourselves. We don't want a Savior riding on a donkey. We want a macho Savior. We want a Savior upon a white horse. We want to forget that what we need to be saved from is not the external oppression of the Romans or our financial distress or anything like that. We need to be saved from our sin. The crowds who acclaimed the coming kingdom of our father David as Jesus came into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday did not truly understand the kind of Savior Jesus intended to be. Indeed, even the disciples did not understand the significance of Christ's act of insisting on a donkey to ride upon into Jerusalem. For in John, the 12th chapter, where John recounts the same thing, he adds these words at verse 16. These things understood not his disciples at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. John says, once Jesus was glorified, then it hit him like a ton of bricks. That's why Jesus rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem. That's what Zechariah was getting at. Your king comes to you lowly, riding upon a donkey. 
The disciples took a long time learning that lesson. Have we learned it? Do we understand what it means to call Jesus Savior? Do we understand that the reason he had to be a loser, one who would die and be humiliated, is because we are losers? We should be humiliated for our sin. We should be cut low by God and put down and kept under his eternal oppression and curse because we have rebelled against him. We have not learned love. We have learned only self-centeredness and all the terrible dark things that sin represents. Jesus went into that valley of depression and death because that's the only place he could find us. If he was going to save us, he would have to come to where we were, and that takes us to the foot of the cross. A humiliated Savior makes no sense to the world. It's foolishness to Greek philosophers. It's a stumbling block to Jews who expected some macho Savior to come. But to us, who, like the disciples, finally understand why Jesus rides a donkey, to us, it's the power and the wisdom of God. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you this morning that in your infinite wisdom you know so much better than we do what we need. We thank you that Jesus did not come in and establish his eternal kingdom on earth right then and there on that first Palm Sunday. For if he had, all of us sinners would have been lost forever. It would have been a kingdom populated by none. We thank you that Jesus knew the reason for his life and ministry. We thank you that Jesus teaches us, even as he did his disciples in that day, that he is a humiliated Savior because we need to be saved from our sins. How we thank you for your glorious, merciful, loved, shown in your Son, Jesus Christ, willing to set his face to Jerusalem to be delivered up for our sakes, that he would truly be our Savior and then exalted and glorified and followed with all of our hearts. Do take our hearts and claim them as your own, the one who is the humiliated Savior of men. For we pray in his precious name. Amen.